welcome to the Learning and Development Podcast. I'm David James, and each week I chat with guests about what lights them up in the world of people development. This week, I'm speaking with Laura Overton, who's a leading figure in our profession, initially for her work with Towards Maturity. In this episode, we discuss evidence-based practice and data in learning and development, hot topics for all of us, as we seem to be perpetually in search of ways to demonstrate our value to appease stakeholders and our sense of worth. This conversation is enlightening and accessible for all, whether you're comfortable with numbers or not. So let's get into it. Laura, welcome to the Learning and Development Podcast. Great to be here. So Laura, people may know you from your work at Towards Maturity, which has been gaining prominence over the last 15 years or so. Um, But that's only half the story. Tell us about your experience in learning and development to date. Well, I actually started in learning development straight from university, which is really unusual. Now, I promise I won't give you my entire life story. (laughs) It won't be that boring. But that was in the mid 80s. And I just got completely hooked on the new technology that was starting to come into the field. Mm. And that's really I spent the first 15 years working um, with roles perhaps very similar to yourself, actually working with forward-thinking organisations who were looking to trial something, at trial at the time, mm. something new, um, computer-based training, technology-based training, all kinds of acronyms were flying all over the place. And actually it was in that field whilst the internet was born and we started to look at how the internet could transform the experience of delivering education in the workplace. So Some great experience for the first 15 years of my career. Absolutely loved it, completely hooked. Um, But I was finding, you know, after the dot-com bubble, you probably don't even remember the dot-com bubble birthing. You were probably a small child. (laughs) You're being too kind. (laughs) Um, But when that happened, everyone was saying, oh, well, technology has no role in in learning. And we see this proves it, you know, Mm. e-learning doesn't work, nothing works. And that's really where I started to kind of tap into my kind of inquisitive mode. I've always been very curious to say, well, why is it? Does it work for some people and not for others? Mm. And that was the birth of the last 15 years working in a basically a longitudinal research study looking at how corporate organisations can embrace the new mm. and so, in such a way that it delivers results. So, um, And this year I've... Um, I decided, you know, I clearly do things in 15 year rounds. And, and in this year, I've kind of said, OK, the tools maturity stuff is working brilliantly. Mm. We've gathered some incredible information that's accessible to people. Um, now I'm going to tap into my curiosity mm. once again. And um, I've, six months ago, I stepped away from that role. And at the moment, I'm just really enjoying exploring. Great. And, and of course, that leads me to my next question then. So this podcast to date has been, well, we've tackled all kinds of issues relevant to modern learning and development, whether that be experience design, transformation, early career strategies, and how people learn. It's clearly a fast-moving landscape. The terminology's changing as well as the practice. And you've been active in the industry, as you say, for 30 years. So what's different now and what is important now? I think that what is different is the pace. And the fact that learning professionals now are under a constant onslaught of new things Mm. that might work and reasons why everything that they're used to doesn't work anymore. And um, that comes thick and fast. There is a new study in inverted commas every every week almost saying 
try this, do this, we've done this. There's been a new case study um, kind of every week as well on the podcast, which I love your podcast. I've absolutely enjoyed going out for walks. Part of my curiosity has been really sharpened by listening to some of your amazing speakers. But I think that can also cause us a little bit of a problem. You think, where do I go? How do I make the right decisions? Because we've got a lot more technology, we've got a lot more expectations from the users around us, and we've got a lot more pressure from our own industry mm. to modernise. Yeah. Um, and I think that I think there's a lot of stress on learning and development professionals, probably more than I've ever seen before. Well, yeah, how do we make the right decision? And that's a real problem for people, I think. Well, in my context, what does this mean? Mm. Where do I even go from here? And I think there's a real, there's a real stress that I think your podcasts are really helping with that mm. but equally all the information we can gather we can be sitting there forever just sitting listening to stories yeah. and reading things where actually we've got to do stuff we've got to actually make a difference mm. in this crazy world of work that we're in and there's i hear it all the time people because there's there's new stuff and there are new trends but there are people looking and thinking well i don't i don't know what to apply to my situation i don't know which of these new technologies which of these new trends to try because I can't try it all. A lot of learning and development functions are um, one person or or two people, One say one manager or one administrator. It's very rare that you have an abundance of resources to go and explore and try new stuff. And so in the absence of knowing, there is this trial. And I think that we're also in a situation where um, the market dictates quite strongly where where practitioners should be going rather than it being an, an equal relationship, which I, I think increases the ambiguity as well as perhaps some some anxiety in the profession as well. Is that is that something you see? I think you're you're absolutely right. Certainly in the early days mm. um, of this field, where I was working my first fifteen years of industry, some of the most exciting things were coming out of the supply side of the mm. market because they had the opportunity to invest and to explore. And I think over time, where it's been successful is where you have good partnerships mm. with. Um, using organisations and the supply side of the organisations where we're learning together. Mm. Um, and I think, though, sometimes, though, the supply side can jump on the latest thing mm. and use all kinds of studies to justify why they're going in that direction. And mm. I think um, we owe each other to experiment together more and to learn together and to be more transparent in that process. And I think that's very exciting. I'm seeing some leading suppliers starting to really say, okay, we don't know it all, but let's work with you mm. on this situation rather than why don't you try my product? And that's where I see some real innovation popping up. And I think that well, leads us on to the, the topic of the, uh, the podcast as well, because rather than trying new stuff, there's something about finding the right tools to solve the right problems, which is where evidence and data, two prominent terms in learning and development, um, really come into their own. But of course, these are these are two very different things and mean different things to different people. So could you give us some clarity then around what evidence and data mean in the context of learning and development and why this is important for us to be discussing this now? Well, I think that evidence um, is something that follows data. We have to mm. start with the building blocks. For me, data is just an input. It can be anything. 
Um, it can be something that comes out of your learning management system, out of your experience platform. It can be something that comes out of a conversation. Uh, but it's, it's a figure. It's a number. It can mean anything. Um, and so data on its own um, is something that's actually potentially quite dangerous. You know, we can read a lot into a single figure, mm. a lot into it. I mean, for example, if I'm going to give you um, a figure right now that was talked about a lot and it's 60% of e-learning projects fail. Now, what's the first thing that comes into your mind at hearing that? The first thing? First thing in my mind is um, something around e-learning doesn't work. Okay, so e-learning doesn't work. Other people might say 60%. Wow, e-learning is a relatively new thing. Mm. That's a very good um, a good rate. Mm. Someone who else might say, well, actually, I've been telling you that we should keep with our classroom training. Mm. So that stat can actually help. But it means nothing unless you know where it's come from yeah. and who has contributed to it. How long has that data been coming? What is the angle that we've been asking the question? What does failure even mean? Mm. So one piece of data, 60% of e-learning projects fail, open up a whole series of questions. And that's why evidence actually is a more powerful concept for us as an industry. Mm. Evidence actually looks at a hypothesis. Evidence looks at an opinion. Evidence looks at a judgment. Evidence looks at, I think, that using technology potentially might help us with efficiency. Now, let's ask questions that allow us to test that. And out of that, that, uh, that piece of data might therefore be relevant. And we might be looking at evidence for um, the classroom training. And out of that, you would say, well, actually, this data shows us that we shouldn't be investing in learning. So I think what we have to do with evidence is actually be very aware of what is in the opinion, what is the judgment that we're looking at? What are we bringing to this? Is it biasing the way that we're asking questions that generate our data? So for me, evidence is really important. Evidence is about what, do I, what am I looking to prove? What am I looking to approve? What am I looking to disprove? Mm. <laughs> what am I looking to improve? And what is the evidence behind that? And then we can start to say, okay, these basic building blocks of information that we're gathering in, how do they help us do those things? So it seems to me, Laura, that the, what you're describing is almost a missing link that, that I observe. The why are we getting involved in the first place? Or even the step before that, what should we actually be getting involved in as far as learning and development is concerned? Am I understanding that right? Yeah, I think so, because everyone's talking about data right now. It's yeah. the new black. Yeah, it really is. It's like, hey, what's your data strategy? Mm. It's data analytics are the top skills that learning and development profession need to develop. Um, data re relevant issues are at the top of Don Taylor's sentiment mm. survey. Everyone is talking about data. And yeah, I think what we need to be doing is saying, OK, why? Mm. Why? Why are we looking at this data? What's important to us? And I think for learning professionals, it's about the questions that we need to be asking right now. And that then helps us to bring a little bit more control into this crazy world that we've got. Yeah. You know, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for my organization? What are the decisions that I need to make in the light of all of this change? And I think that helps us to start to define what it is that we need from all of these data points that potentially surround us. It always seems inevitable. Um, we, well, first of all, we've been talking about data for a, for a long time in business, not just in learning and development. 
And I think that there's been an acknowledgement in learning and development that we have used data mainly as a retrospective or to find out how what we've implemented has been um, engaged with, completed, whether, what people's opinion of it was. Um, but in the as, as HR and people analytics becomes more prevalent and as it becomes a hotter topic, as you said, in, uh, in uh, Don Taylor's um, sentiment analysis, we start seeing a rejection or a reaction to it. Um, what I'm seeing here is that learning and development professionals responding in a way and saying, yeah, but, you know, you've got to go with your gut instinct or, you know, we've got to be able to use our observation and all of, and all of this stuff. Which leads me on to a couple of points. Number one is, um, is, is this rejection or misinterpretation a problem? And are we guilty of what we've been doing in learning and development for the last five or 10 years or so in that we have emerging practice coming through and we immediately rebrand what we're doing <laughs> as, the, yeah. as the old practice and say that we are you know, in the same way as we're, we're agile, we're digital, just because we've got an LMS and we've got e-learning, you know, it's... But... Absolutely. And, you know, we're taking advantage of some of the new terms mm. to say, oh, this is new and trendy. We're now doing AI, you know. And I think, I think there's actually been a study, I'll, I'll look it out for you, but mm. there's actually been a study that says that if an organisation, any organisation starts to use data analytics and artificial intelligence... In their uh, promotion, I think it was Will Talamo who actually brought this to our attention, mm. um, that automatically people assign credibility to that. Now, that is a crazy thing that's mm. affecting our world where we're actually taking something trendy, yep. putting it into our material and thinking that it's going to make a difference and thinking it infers authority. Now, what I have seen over the last 30 years is this is something that we love to do mm. in learning and development because we like the next thing because we think it's going to be the thing that's going to give us that breakthrough mm. of delivering value back to the business. Um, so I think what we do need to do is be very careful, very, very careful about how we assign words and look at meaning. And if we don't know for us to be more curious and for us to ask better questions. Well, what does, what does this mean? Hmm. What does artificial intelligence mean? What does personalised learning mean? What, how do we use data to improve engagement? Why is engagement important hmm. in the first place? You know, these are the sorts of questions that we need to start to be bringing and asking and be more critical in terms of our approach to all of this data that's coming into us. But it's not about just plugging in a new system, is it? No. Um, getting getting good data or uh, refocusing on data isn't about plugging in a system and expecting stuff to come out the other side. It's changing the way that we think. Going back to what you said before, it's about the questions we ask. So what is this and what is it not? If you, we, we, Let's look at this in the context of learning and development and we've got um, our listener is in charge of a learning and development function or is, is um, curious about exploring more in terms of data and evidence in their practice. What does this look like for them? Well, I love the work from the Centre for Evidence-Based Management mm. uh, with Rob Reiner and those guys. Um, I love that because they say we need to look at the best available evidence 
and critically assess it in order to make smart decisions. Mm. That's their, their view. But their role of evidence is not just you know, what's coming out of your learning management system or your latest platform or the extent to which you can visualise those statistics of completion and engagement and when people drop out and when they go forward and how long they're going to be spending and when they're going to be spending. It's not just about taking one set of data, mm-hmm. but it's about looking at a range of different data. And they actually identify four sets, which I think really makes sense. One is scientific data. Now, in our context, that's quite difficult to get hold of. There's some great people out there like Patty Shanks and Will Talamer who are actually trying to convert scientific studies into things that we can actually start to use and understand. But equally, scientific means thorough. It means robust. It means mm. longitudinal. So, you know, some of the towards maturity work, um, in fact, all of that was based on a very thorough and robust learning uh, uh, research methodology. Mm. So there's a kind of an external scientific, there's also internal organisational data, and that's where your platforms Mm -hmm. can come in. That's where your employee studies come in. There's also data from your stakeholders as well. You know, what's important to them? What are they measuring? How do we capture that? And how do we grab hold of that? And Mm -hmm. then there's also our own experience. And if you have been in your organisation for a number of years, there is an experience that you would have had and that is also data that's evidence that can help you make the decision and then when you combine all of those you can start to say okay well what makes sense for me in this situation Mm. and I think that's you know so what is evidence it can be all of these things Um, but it's how we use them to answer the questions that are important to us at that point in time. And I think that that's a a critical element to this as well. There was a great article uh, from Harvard. Uh, It was how to think like a data scientist. And it starts with a hypothesis or an assumption, which may be that in the the example in the article is that meetings never start on time. You think of any organisation, whether it be 500 people, 1,000 people, 30,000 or more, um, that that is just an assumption that, uh, that meetings don't start on time. So in, within this article, the author, uh, to make it accessible for the reader who's not a data scientist, says that the, as soon as you frame that as a hypothesis, then your role is to, to list out what data would prove or disprove your hypothesis. And you would just list out literally off the top of your head uh, what that could be. Then you would actually go and find that like as a find a way of just in a very low touch way, going and trying to find this data. And in the example in the article, they go along themselves for every meeting they go along to. They then collect the data on when the meeting was supposed to start, when it did start, who was leading the meeting. And um, what they came out with as a result was that only meetings that was that were run by less than director level or something actually didn't start on time. And it wasn't all meetings, it was only a fraction. So what they did with just a little bit of application beforehand, before jumping in and if it was learning and development, developing a course or procuring some e-learning or or whatever might might be um, the, the medium of choice, they've spent more time exploring what the actual issue is for who and then decided whether to address it or not. It's, it's a very different way. Again, it's not like, you know, I, I, when thinking of, uh, of, of data... Perhaps in a simplistic sense, I think of a children's TV show when I was younger called Bertha. And it was this huge 
um, for the international audience and for uh, for anybody who's less than, who's younger than forty years old. Um, it was just this great big behemoth um, uh, computer. You put something in one end and you get something out the other, and then it was always surprised what comes out the other end. It's that was the TV show, but it's not just about getting a system and then seeing what comes out of one end of it as if it was going to be a surprise and a direction. It starts with something. It starts with trying to find out what the biggest priorities are, what critical points of failure are in your organization or with a set of people that is having an impact and something they care about. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I think going back to that stat that I asked your, your, your opinion on, that mm. actually was a trigger point for me 15 years ago because I had heard that that stat was being banded around by mm. everyone, all the suppliers, all of the users. This was a big study um, in 2002. And uh, for me, it triggered a question. And the question was, why is it that 40% of e-learning programs potentially don't fail? Mm. What is success? What does success look like? Yeah. And from that, the very first study that I did was actually, it's all conversation. It was mainly anecdotal evidence, but it was gathered in quite a structured way. And I also gathered evidence from users of organizations who were perceived to be successful in inverted commas. But it was that question of what does success look like mm. when we're aspiring award winners at the time, people were being written about, people were being interviewed in podcasts or mm. whatever. We looked at what does success look like? And from that conversation came a range of different ideas and it was all linked back to value. Yeah. Success was always about I was improving sales, I was improving customer service, I was improving. Very rarely was it about um, it was, I'm, I'm getting loads of people through my e-learning courses. Mm. It was always about impact. And that for us was the start. So everything, our hypothesis was always driven by well, what leads to impact and how do we explore that further? And that's why data then is just the start of it, because you've got to be critical of data to understand not just where it came from and why it was surfaced in the first place, but its relevance in any given context. And having worked in not just different organisations, but different uh, sectors, I realised there is no plug and play. I've never found a successful plug and play model. And this is where I suppose the evidence element on top, layered on top of solid data really comes into its own. So leads on to my next question. If we're going to explore evidence, what, what evidence counts or what, what, what's the purpose of evidence and, and how do we make it work for us? Well, I think those four areas that we've talked about before, the scientific data, you know, what's out there yeah. that has been gathered in a relatively robust way. Let's check and ask the questions. Mm. What have we got from internally? What have we got from our stakeholders when we ask questions? Mm. And what do we know from our own experience? You know, if those are the four kind of areas of evidence, you know, the concept of what makes it robust is the why. Mm. It's the questions that we ask. What do I need to do now in my organisation? Why do I need to do it? Why is that going to be important to my stakeholders? And will it prepare me also for the future? And I think that's a question that not many learning professionals actually ask at the moment. Mm. So they might say, I'll make a knee-jerk reaction or I need to do something to deliver more for less. Yeah. Um, but can I deliver more for less in such a way that it also prepares me to create a more engaging learning culture? Mm. You know, so, so some of these questions that we need to ask 
are important. When we've got the questions down, the ones that are important for us to answer right now, we can then start to look, critically analyse what we've got available to us and act on it mm. and then start to act. You've talked, I think, in the podcast many times about the mini experiments. Mm. Start to act, start to change, start to adapt, gather our own data in that will help us understand how to answer our, our core hypothesis. I think that's a really key point as well, because in learning and development, we can be guilty of making big bets that with our gut feeling plus minimal observation plus plus stakeholder request, we build a program. And that program then is scheduled. And within 12 months, everybody would have attended as a one and done. It's, you know, and consistency is a measure of success as much as satisfaction <laughs> or, or, or attendance uh, or, or, or any kind of uh, assessment. Whereas by running small experiments to see whether we've moved the needle in the right direction as far as the data is concerned and seek evidence that it has made a significant impact, then we're able to scale what works rather than just scale a, a consistent experience. Exactly. And it also it's all to be, do with context. So yeah. the question I would ask you is, why is engagement important? Mm. Why is that a critical thing in, that, in a particular organisation at a particular time? Mm. Is it important that people are engaged with that particular piece of um, content mm. or whatever it is? So that is actually really important for us to be thinking about. Why is this important? Because we say, like, oh, engagement levels are up. Mm. But if you put that in a beautifully visualised uh, dashboard for your senior executive teams and they say, so what? Mm. So what? Have you got the answer to that? So I think how we use the data is really important. And, and, we, and how we use it comes back to our questions. Mm -hmm. You do have to get kind of very practical about this, though. Mm. And I know that you've had loads of experience of this, of using different types of data from around organisations. Maybe it's my turn to throw a question back at you, David, <laughs> and say, how has this worked? How has it come together in some of the organisations that you've worked What evidence, what data have you used? What hypothesis were you making? Mm. How did you shift the decisions that you were making? Well, I'm very fortunate to have interviewed Tracy Waters from Sky in the previous episode, and as well as running an agile learning and development function, which is the title of the podcast, they are heavily data uh, driven, which means that um, they will seek data to recognise whether there is a priority that needs addressing. Is there a critical point of failure? Now, it's not just business information. So they're not just looking at um, uh, what might be a, a procedural or or a critical productivity gap, but they're looking also at types of people, recognising where there are distinct groups of people who are experiencing friction in their uh, their everyday work or with uh, an eye on the future that needs addressing. Then they'll work closely with them. So they start with the data. And in the um, Fosway Innovation report that uh, that was published Tracy states in there that they don't act if they don't have the data. So it all starts with that, which stops, in my words, silly requests coming in and asking for training courses where really it's just a sticking plaster over an ill-defined problem. But if you start with the data, then the agile methodology afterwards is they get a squad together to work with the client to understand what, what is being experienced in relation to that data. Then they'll work with that client on a minimum valuable product on moving the needle as far as that data is concerned. But what is given to them isn't a learning initiative, 
they are tools to equip them so that not just they, but people who are less experienced but keenly experienced in the friction are equipped to address that. Then their measure of success is, has the needle moved on the data? So it starts with robust data. So what kind of data would that be? So so first of all, as I mentioned, business information, critical points of failure. I won't divulge, I won't go into to, to the nuts and bolts of their business, uh, but they will also work with, um, say, new managers. And I suppose that's going to be things that we would recognise that what if what if new management went wrong? Well, you don't have product, productive teams, uh, you don't have engaged teams, and engaged te- people who aren't engaged uh, are flight risks, potentially, that they're not performing to the potential. If you've got a brand new manager who's responsible for six people, you don't want them delivering four people's worth of output because you've got a manager who can't delegate. You know, there are, there are several things that, that, um, that you can, you can recognize are points of failure in that. Um, you have got, uh, people's performance ratings. So however you rate performance. So all, all of these things that could be a potential risk of having new managers who aren't equipped and prepared and supported and guided to fulfill the elements of the job that they are responsible for. So those, when people are transitioning into the organisation and into new roles, they're quite easy to recognise points of, of data because it's all about the success of um, individuals and, in, and their teams and their work output. Uh, and whatever you decide then is an important factor for the organisation as far as success is concerned. Those are measures of success. Now, a really critical point here is that this isn't saying that learning and development then are accountable for results, but they are certainly responsible for helping or equipping people and experimenting with them in order to move the needle. That, I think, is an important distinction. Absolutely. And I think what you've just described there actually is a very interesting perspective on evidence-based decision because Mm. some of those decisions that you were just describing were actually based on some scientific evidence that are outside of the Sky organisation, and you're mm. talking about engagement and productivity and some of those issues, that's informed what is risk. Mm. What is risk this organisation? Then you've got internal data, then you're working with the stakeholders as well. And then also both you and Tracy, you'll be working together, bringing your own experience to say, okay, well, how do we adapt? How do we make decisions as a result of this? So there's a wide range of inputs into that big issue of like, we want to improve productivity and I think that's so important and I think this concept of working with stakeholders Mm. there's evidence consistent evidence to show that that works in learning and development Mm. as one of the questions that we were asking continually over 15 years in the towards maturity health check was the extent to which you work with your stakeholders to define a problem yeah and, uh, you know, over a series of years, it, the needle on that question across the globe didn't really increase more than 30% of us as learning and development leaders. And yet there was a consistent correlation between that stakeholder partnership mm. and the organisation regularly reporting back that they were changing what matters to the business, productivity, engagement, all of those sorts of Mm. issues. So, you know, there is evidence to show that the practice works and yet many of us ignore it. And some of it, sometimes it's because that evidence is common sense, Mm. but we just ignore it. And I think that's one of the things that we need to do with some of the data that's out there, some of the evidence that's out there, some of the reports to start to critically look across them mm. and say, okay, where are some of the themes 
What are the principles that are consistent across all of these different? And how can I start to change my behavior Mm. in order to embrace this? Because a lot of people have made a lot of mistakes. I can learn from those Mm. without making that same mistake. Yet often we don't. No, I I completely agree. And going back to the the example of uh, of Sky and without rehashing the whole podcast, um, because it's the last episode uh, with Tracy from uh, from Sky. First of all, I I don't work closely with Tracy. Her and her team are, are, are light years ahead of anywhere I've seen, and I hang on to their coattails to to try to 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 stay close and uh, and understand um, the progress that they're making. But it does all start with data, and she made a really critical point that in face of stakeholders who are requesting training or solutioneering on behalf of learning and development rather than confiding in a, a trusted partner who might be able to help them address their issues. She takes data to them. And so they've got something as a as a base to start working on. And then you get to, this, this is my interpretation of that now, then you've got an indicator of whether they want just something done to their team or whether they want to solve their problem. And I think that that's a, a critical role for learning and development to not pretend that there is a learning event that's going to come out of it, that we clearly define what the outcome that's required is. And some managers just want an away day. And if that if they've got budget and that's the culture of the organisation, then it's absolutely fine. But let's not dress it up as anything else. But if you've got a real problem and the data says, look, I've got a critical point of failure in my team and I'd really welcome working with you on this, then I think that that's then a, a role of a sophisticated learning and development professional who's comfortable to engage in a conversation about data. We've not even di- di- dived into it yet, but he's then willing to, to solve a real problem. And I think that this is a misinterpretation of data in learning and development, that it's something retrospective. Yeah. It's the, well, we've already decided to run a training course. All I'm asking you to do is retrospectively tell me whether that was worth the investment. But what yeah. problem was we solving? Well, I was asked for it, or it seemed like the logical thing to do. As far as I'm concerned, I tell people the horse has bolted. Don't waste your time. Absolutely. And I I, I agree with that because the question we need to be asking is, what do we need to change here? Mm. What, what is the needle on the dial that we need to be able to shift? Now, I agree with you 100% on data and conversations. It opens conversations in a way that opinion doesn't. Yeah. And that, I think, is massively powerful. But we have to be careful that we're not bringing our own bias into mm. that data. Um, when I was working with Towards Maturity, there was an incredible amount of data on impact, um, your productivity, improvements of maybe 20% that could be run over two to 300 organisations may have contributed to that statistic. Now, what I would say to a smart, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a sophisticated L&D person, mm. but a smart um, L&D person is to say, okay, you could take that to someone and say, if it was possible for us to achieve just 10% of this, is it worth us looking at something different? Mm. So the way we use data in conversation is really important. We could take data from um, all of the studies that are being done at the moment with how individuals are using technology on their own to improve their performance and take those back to line managers and say, if these were your organisations, would you still be asking me, or individuals, would you still be asking me for the programme or the course that you're asking me for? So data can really shift the conversation and you don't have to have all the answers, but you can use it to open up the kind of questions you want to ask 
and the conversation that you need to have with your stakeholders, as you say, before the horse has bolted. Now, L&D is only really at the beginning of the road with data, but you've referenced previously how marketing uses evidence to drive performance and learn from its approach. Can you explain how that works and what L&D can learn from marketing? Well, I think that marketing have been really good at kind of capturing the small amounts of information, the small amounts of data they know. They do campaigns. They'll do a campaign in one way to one organisation and a campaign to another mm. uh, another group. Now, they'll call that A-B testing. You know, there's so many new acronyms that are coming in and new terms that come in from other. But it's it's basically running two groups and yeah. then s- comparing comparing the results. Did one work better than the other? Were there different circumstances from the other? Now, a way that um, learning and development professionals can potentially use it, and I've seen this many times, is if you're rolling out a new initiative, but only some part of the organisation can have access to that and the others, you're going in a more traditional route, that's immediately a gift, yeah. an absolute gift to you to say, okay, well, let's just compare um, how the end results look at both of these areas. But if you've got the luxury of being able to use fine-tune using technology, you can maybe use little small small areas, change the title of something, change mm. the name of something, compare, trust, work with small focus groups. Smoke, small focus groups give you great data. Marketing are always doing that. You, you don't have to be a marketer. You just have to watch couple of episodes of The Blooming Apprentice over yeah. here in the UK or in the US to know that you've got to run your focus group. Now, that is that is data, but are you, how are you using that and what questions are you asking and how do you then harness that and act on it? Yeah, I think that's what's so powerful about A-B testing is in the context of what will you do. So you're, prevent, you're presenting people with messages, say, at the point of need or anticipating points of need to see whether you get through the door, which is, I think, the role of engagement rather than end point in itself. Are people coming through the door when you're presenting it to them with one message um, over another message? And I think that that if we, I'm a big fan of using the term experimentation rather than program, because if we run small experiments like this to see what gains us the results that we're after, and I think we should be certainly more aspirational with our results than than engagement, then we can scale what has worked for us rather than what I associate with programs, which is we've kind of already decided what this might be. And as people come through the door, we might tailor and tweak it depending on who we have in the room or um, as we learn small amounts along the way, more tricky to do with, uh, with e-learning perhaps. Um, but with an experiment, it's about moving the needle as far as the data is concerned rather than a program which is launched down upon to people. Yeah. Now, um, I feel awkward about quoting you from uh, from articles I've read in the past, but I'm going to go again, Laura. And you'd said that many, many L&D leaders are looking to modernise their learning, but maybe they are held back by a fear of numbers. And so it may not be our forte. That's how I, I recognise that. I hear a lot that we're people people, that we develop programmes and content. We facilitate and get good reactions to that as well. But can we afford to ignore this or leave it to somebody else? Well, I think there is an issue about the fact that we're people, people, but it's not just an issue. It's an opportunity that we're people, people. Mm. And yes, there is a lot going on in organisations around data at the moment, you know, sort of 
your interview with with Tracy would have proven, you know, Sky is a data-driven organization. Mm. Organizations generally are becoming more data-driven. And so therefore, this issue of data and analytics isn't just an L&D issue. It's a much broader issue. And Mm. I think that gives us as people people an incredible opportunity. Because if we stop thinking... It's all about, you know, I'm the one who's got to catch up. Mm. I don't do numbers. How am I going to catch up and do data visualization and understand what the hell is causation or correlation or all of these things that we're expected to maybe know about? Mm. Actually, the whole organization is on that journey. And there are other people that we can team up with. And I heard a brilliant example the other day when I went to um, an event. And instead of being full of uh, learning professionals, it was full of data analysts. But the issues they were talking about were identical to the issues that we talk about in the modernizing learning field. They were talking about, you know, how do we get the organization to think differently? How do we get the organization to be able to understand that they need data in order to make a decision? Mm. How do we? And I'm thinking to myself, this is a perfect opportunity for us as people, people to to work with them, say, look, you've got a challenge. We can help you. Why don't we work together? And in doing so, we can build our own skills. And there was this great case study of somebody running a a data analyst apprenticeship program from their L&D in order to improve the data capacity of their organization. And she thought, you know what, why don't I join them? And she joined the apprenticeship program. She learned with them. And I think that's a really exciting thing for us um, to be able to do. And to be able to put aside our fear of numbers, we don't have to be perfect, mm. but we don't have to be willing to understand what the hell is going on here. And I want to be curious about how I can help. And I think that gives us a fantastic opportunity. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Looking, stepping outside of the learning and development field to understand what's going on. Of course, data science is, uh, I read recently, I think it was on the LinkedIn report, is the most desirable skill set in the first world right now Um, and yet with data scientists when you read up the articles about that that you know they say the problem with data science if you read those types of articles mm. is because they're not asking the question that is important to the business they're being driven by what's the data saying oh lots and lots of pieces of information flying at me I can come up with anything but is it useful yeah and again as people 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 who want to add value back into business L&D if we practice our questioning techniques then we're actually going to be helpful to the data scientists because mm. that's one area that they're really struggling with is, is finding the useful application of what they can do. Okay, so I think that leads us nicely on to, to, to a wrap-up here. And if we could just bundle this nicely up together, how can L&D people make steps into these areas, evidence, data, perhaps in an environment that isn't particularly evidence-based or sophisticated in using data itself? Start with you. For me, the secret ingredient of a successful engagement with evidence and data is the questions you have of the situation. It starts with your context. And I think that's massively important. And then to say, okay, if I need to make a decision, what might be out there? What is the best available information that I can get my hands on in the time available to help me sharpen my decision? Is there anything out there that will help me challenge my biases? Mm. You know, can I do I look at something in order to prove the point I've already made? Or is it something that makes me question whether I need to look at it differently? 
And I think they're the things that we can actually do as individuals. It doesn't matter whether we're an instructional designer, whether we're heading up a major um, global learning and development function, uh, whether we're in the supply side of the industry. But what is the evidence out there for me to actually make this point, to have this opinion? And am I willing to be challenged? Mm. And I think that is a good place to start. Wonderful. Um, so, Laura, if people want to follow your work or follow you on social media, how can they do so? I'm on LinkedIn and on Twitter, Laura Overton. Wonderful. And we'll pop the links in the show notes as well. Laura, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank, Thank you, you for being for a guest. Thank you for having me. It's always so energising speaking with Laura and she knows how to make challenging topics accessible and practical. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a rating on your podcast app of choice. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, perhaps to suggest topics you'd like to hear discussed, you could tweet me at David in Learning, connect on LinkedIn or Facebook, for which you'll find the links in the show notes. Goodbye for now.